This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. My guest today is Bill Campbell. Bill is the president of the Keystone Agricultural Producers, and he's also a mixed farmer near, and he runs a farm near Minto, which I believe is just south of Brandon on Highway 10. Bill Campbell is a fourth generation farmer who has 2,600 acres of land, 1,700 acres that he seeds to an annual crop, and we'll get into all of that. And he's also a purebred limousine cattle operator. He has a diploma in agriculture from the University of Manitoba. And in typical fashion, he is one of these incredibly humble farmers that no matter how hard you find, you can never find anything that he says about himself. So we're going to get into that. We're going to find out who Bill Campbell is, and I would like to welcome to Humans on Rights, Bill Campbell. Welcome. Thank you for taking the interest in agriculture. So, Bill, I did grow up in a farm in Saskatchewan, so I know a little bit, not a lot, but I did a a quick math here. When I see 2,600 acres, I'm always drawn to the fact that, you know, 640 acres was a section of land. And of course, I'm old school, so not kilometers, but miles. And a section of land was always the road allowance. And so you always kind of knew where a mile was by the road allowance. And this 2,600 acres comes down to about four sections. That's something you should be very proud of. And if you've been on that for four generations, Bill, take us back. That's got to be about 100 years, right? Our family has farmed in this community for 140 years. Wow. The homestead was settled in 1881. They came west and stopped in a couple of other places, but found that the Surus River Valley was, I sometimes wish they'd have traveled a little bit further along, but at that particular time, there was the wood, the ice, the environment, so that you could start farming and raise a family and that part. They were some of the early pioneers in this particular district, just south of the Surus River, where north of the community of Minto and a couple of other families that came about the same time. But, and I, you know, I often wonder what makes you stay for 140 years in in the same location. And yeah, it's the roots that we have in this community. So. Yeah. And I, so Bill, your, would have been your grandfather to who would have started the homestead? Well, I, there's a bit of a story and a bit, bit of history, but it was a great, great uncle, one of the early pioneers. And in that particular time, the story goes that he was leading a cow, carrying a chicken in a knapsack to the neighbors and probably an exchange and bartering and different stuff like that. But he was struck by lightning and killed. And so then his brother came to this particular farm and took over like that was like within the first year or two of his homesteading and so his brother came and then that would be my great great grandfather so he started and then my grandpa actually died relatively young as well and carried on with tradition and my wife has indicated that i didn't have a chance uh, in so much <laughs> as that i was a farmer when i was four years old right and stuff and 
playing in the garden and playing with cattle and all the rest of it. And it's, that's all I've ever done is farm in this particular location, other than two years at, at University of Manitoba. Right. Yeah. Where you got your diploma in, in agriculture from the University of Manitoba. Going back to the beginning. So when you're, when this started for you, and as you said, it was your great, great, great uncle. Yeah. 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 So when he started, I mean, at that time, I mean, it would be mostly, I'm assuming, grain versus livestock. I think it would be very small, humble beginnings. And probably it would be a mixed farm with even chickens and pigs and whatever you needed to survive the year and to have that variety of diet. They might have grown some wheat to make their own flour. But my understanding is that in the early days that they would take the wagon to Brandon uh, with a load of wheat, and then they would get some of it processed and then come back with their necessities, be it sugar and some of those basic needs that were required for canning and preserving and, and all of that part. You know, there was those skills and certain things that were required to maintain a healthy, somewhat healthy, I guess, in today's terms, you know, a diet and a variety of foods because they didn't have refrigerators or deep freezes or or any of that component. So how they dried foods and and different stuff and fresh meat. And and I guess that would be the other thing along the Searce River Valley. There would always be game, the wildlife, the deer and some of those aspects that were accessible. I've seen some photos of early days and, and there is not very much bush or trees there would be the wildfires started from lightning and different things like that. The prairies were the prairies and there were no interruptions of the grasslands and stuff. It was just grass and it, it got burnt off and stuff. So that along the river would be where you would be able to get wood for winter heat to the river to get ice to keep things for some period of time and, and probably shelter too. It's always nicer in February by the river than it is out in the middle of the prairie. For sure. And so, Bill, just uh, share with us, if you will, did you, was there always a large family? Uh, you know, just typically farming families are a bit larger simply because there's labor involved. And so... In our family, that my grandfather, they had three children, two boys and a girl. And both of them, both of the boys decided to farm. And then one of them was my dad. And so there was three in that family and myself and two sisters. So not large families like some traditional ones. I have eight eight cousins in an immediate family and three in another cousins as well. But my uncle had eight in his family and three boys and five girls. But yeah, I wouldn't say real traditional in that aspect of it. Most of those boys decided to farm. That was where their interests were. It's a fascination when you talk about four generations of farming and or farming and producing cattle. When did the sort of, if you, you know, kind of the homestead part of it, Bill, when did that start to become sort of the farm that you see today to 2,600 acres? And My grandfather married my grandmother and they lived three quarters of a mile apart. I guess the courtship, I don't know, was at the local school or, you know, it wasn't a long distance type of scenario. And so actually, my father took over my grandmother's farm yard. And so then my uncle carried on the original Campbell homestead. So it would be probably in that in the 50s, somewhere around there, when dad moved to 
where the current our home farm is, but the other Campbell homestead is still farmed by a fifth generation Campbell as well. So that, you know, it has carried on there as well. It was kind of the amalgamation of two families right side by side. And so some of the, my grandmother's land got transferred to my dad. And there's been some of that back and forth. That at some point in time, there was over seven sections of land farmed by Campbell's when we farmed together for a while because of labor issues and, and all of that part. But we have our farm and they have their farm. Been able to be successful in just this general area. And when you look at, I'd be sort of fascinated to hear kind of your sense of the history of what's happened over those generations and how you've changed maybe the crops that you've seed from time to time. And, and again, I'd like to hear a bit about that, Bill. And then I'm going to ask you, when did you get into cattle, particularly limousine cattle? But let's talk about the crops. I mean, how do you, what sort of crops, what have you done there for seeding? Well, I guess the original part of the livestock came, my dad worked in the wintertime in Northern Ontario, and he worked in the lumber camps in Ontario. And once the family came along, that it was important that he be at home. And so with that, season, he actually got, I think it was five cows from my uncle. And so we started them probably when I was about six or something like that, when the cows came here and uh, just kind of a natural evolution since then. And some days I curse that scenario as well, but it, it went from there. And so we developed our cow herd and then got involved in 4-H, you know, and, and a really took a likeness and a, and a bond to raising of the livestock. And then I, you know, I, through 4-H, became more interested in the showing and the ability to make management decisions to improve the genetics and the herd and all of those things. It was a keen interest. And so, you know, and always felt at that particular time that it was a diversification. When one was good, the other one would kind of help save you in so much as maybe we had some tough wheat that we needed to get rid of and couldn't market and stuff. And so we fed it to the cattle or along the riverland, we had some area that it was more forage production and couldn't really manage it unless you wanted to pick rocks 24-7 and stuff like that, that they were able to utilize that. And, and so diversification carried us through some pretty tough times and was able to ensure that, well, we sell some steers and make a loan payment. And maybe the crop wasn't quite as good at the droughts of the 60s or something like that, that we're able to. And then you have some good crops and, well, lo and behold, you bought more cows, it seemed like, and stuff. And so, or you buy another piece of pasture and, and that part. And we actually had an opportunity in 75 to buy six quarters of pasture land. And that came from one quarter section of wheat, seed wheat production. And we bought, paid cash and, and bought this pasture land. So when times were good in one enterprise, they allowed you to expand in another one. And so that kind of carried on that way. And then just with the continental breeds coming to Canada, we got involved with artificial insemination and some of the experiences with various breeds and took a, a real liking to want the breed that we chose, the limousine cattle, for their ability to finish crossbreed. And I probably at an early age didn't realize it, but I'm a strong advocate 
of meat production. Like that's why we raise cattle is for the meat and the consumers. And these have high cutability, high yield and a high palatability for consumers. And, you know, I, I understand and appreciate that we need marbling in our meat, but we have to have meat or else I don't understand why we would be raising cattle. So that's the, the basis of converting feedstuffs into pro- edible protein for humans. Right. Yeah. And I think the notion that you know, what you're doing is you're at the end of the day, and I know this is sounds sort of glowing, but I mean, all producers are feeding the world. I mean, that's what you do. I mean, you produce product to feed the world. And, and I wanted to talk a bit about that, Bill, just on the basis, I know you're the president of Keystone Agriculture Producers, or CAP, as it's very well known. And there's a lot of policy that gets discussed at CAP and because all of you that are involved uh, on the board are people, you know, producers like you, and they're, which is great. So they've got a, your grassroots organization, which is fantastic. I wanted to just get a sense, Bill, when you, you know, we talked about the fact that June 7th is World Food Safety Day, and there's lots of conversation about keeping food safe and how it's produced. From your perspective as a producer and from your organization's perspective from CAP, are there things there that, that work, work for you in the sense that when you talk about World Safety Day, it's a great title. We, we just do it. It's how we work our, you know, it's how we grow food on an organized basis. It's not, somebody doesn't have to tell us that our food has to be safe. Just love to get your comments on that. A couple of points with regards to that is that I'm a consumer as well. And I am quite willing and sure of being able to eat the products that I raise as well. There are regulatory bodies and safety built into our system. I still, to this day, consume the meat that we raise. I would share a a roast beef with the queen or the prime minister or whatever and, and feel quite confident in that part of it. And you know, and the protocols that we follow with regards to grain production to ensure that everything is above board, follow safety protocols and the rules and regulations that are set out, not putting treated seed in the grain system and, and all of those particular deals and the, the pesticides and herbicides that we use are following label rates and all of those particular things that that farmers in agriculture do to ensure that we have that confidence in the system. I go to Safeways in the grocery store just like somebody in Brandon or Winnipeg does and have the utmost confidence in our system. I just happen to have the unique opportunity to grow some of the raw products that are used to make some of these final products. And so, Bill, on that on that basis, was there ever a time where there was a question whether food was being produced safely or not that caused, you know, some of these regulations, sometimes they get put in place and whether, I mean, we can debate whether regulations are meaningful and helpful in some respects or harmful in some respects. But was there something that happened that caused this to become a sort of having to have a day for World Safety Food Day? And I appreciate and acknowledge that consumers have become more willing to be informed about where their food comes from because they are more distant from where the food is produced. And like you say, you grew up on a farm, and I think that you would have that trust factor because you were exposed to what was done to produce the food. 
And we see now generations that are distanced from that, and they're questioning some of those particular practices or reasons why. And I think the other thing that that I've noticed is that when we go to the grocery store, there is a wider diversity of where the products are coming from. And you have the ability to choose all kinds of products from around the world as your preference or customer choice. Now, do they all follow the same protocols that Canada does? I would suggest that Canada has some of the highest standards in the world with regards to food safety. Now, when we produce some of these raw products, have they followed the same protocols? And so that's a a debate as well as when we get into food labeling and country of origin labeling and is it manufactured here or is it growing here or is it growing somewhere else and, and all of that part. And so there's consumer questioning with regards to some of those features. And I would think that consumers would have a greater appreciation if they produced some of their own food and understood the, the protocols and the, and the rationale that, that we go through to ensure that the products they consume are safe. And I wouldn't for one minute suggest, Bill, that any of the consumers, any of their search that say apologize, any of the producers are in this to try to circumvent anything. I mean, it is their livelihood. I mean, clearly, if uh, something didn't go well, and I know that I was in Manitoba at the time I was involved in politics when the whole BSE crisis hit, and that was punishing to so many people who were clearly should not have been impacted. Yeah, it still to this day has impacted our farm. There's still consequences from that part. We've lost the generation of livestock producers. And it's still, as much as anything, it still weighs, will tomorrow be the next BSE? Like yesterday, JBS had a hack on their system and the market's closed for a day. Well, all of a sudden you go, well, how long will this last? And, and with COVID, we had impacts with regards to things that have consequences down the road and, and it, it impacts your farm. And we go about our business, but world events have a huge impact on my farm, personally, because that's where I make my decisions, but on agriculture farms across Manitoba and Canada. And so that's, that's a huge concern moving forward, because one of the things that I think that should really be noted is that agriculture is a year-round job. We sow in May. and We harvest in September and October, and we don't just turn a switch on and say, well, we'll, in seven days, we'll make you a new light bulb, or we just don't have that ability to turn it off type of thing. It's a very integrated system, and and it's quite complex, as we've seen through COVID, that when something goes wrong, it affects so many others along the way. So, Bill, just to take a moment, if you will, and and talk about maybe what, from your perspective, some of the impact that COVID has had on your operation, or if you want to speak broadly for CAP, uh, you know, certainly that's fine also. We've seen the impact of uncertainty. It was, what will tomorrow be like? It was the biggest thing when it first started. When it kind of first came around, we were calving and, and there was a shutdown of some of the processing plants. Well, will there be a market for these calves in the fall? We sell purebred stock uh, as well. And 
will there be customers that want bulls? Like if they can't sell their cattle, why would they want to keep cows? Or why would they want to purchase cattle for breeding purposes? Would there be a liquidation like we've seen with BSE? What's going to be the impact of this? Like it was so much uncertainty. Would there be government support? CFA, Canadian Federation of Agriculture, asked for $2.9 billion, and it was flatly refused at that point in time. And so would there be that support that we would be required? I seen an immediate, like we sold our, some of our steers and then COVID impacted us. I seen an immediate drop of 30 cents a pound on our heifers. So it was a huge, you know, $25,000, $30,000 loss just in that particular part. And that's a, like a once a year market opportunity for those group of cattle. And Bill, just walk me through that. So the drop in price would be because there is an abundance of product supply on the market? Well, when they shut down the processing plants, those animals that were scheduled to be harvested didn't come. So all of a sudden, the pens that were finishing those cattle weren't empty. If you don't have an empty pen, you can't bring the next group of cattle in. So you're not willing to buy. So if you're not willing to buy, then it backs up to Bill Campbell. Well, Bill Campbell needs to market these cattle because I've got newborn calves on the ground happening that need pen space. And, and I have cash flow needs and all the rest of it. And so we operate on a just-in-time system, you know, that, that's very integrated and relying on the other. But if one part breaks down, then it just has so many impacts and consequences further back. We've seen the dumping of milk in certain jurisdictions. We've seen the destroying tomatoes in Florida and vegetable crops in California. Like there was no market. So what do you do with it? They, like tomatoes don't last forever on the vine, right? Like it's not like a, oh, just put it on the shelf. Like there'll be Christmas next year. We'll get rid of that at that point in time. They go rotten. And so producers had to make decisions. And some of the impacts of COVID was the temporary foreign workers to harvest some of these products. It's naive to think that, well, we'll just go out and pick apple. Well, there's a process that when they're budding and stuff, that there needs to be care and attention to detail to ensure that that apple you get is three to four inches across and, and it's not deformed and, and all the rest of it. And so when they're flowering and there's pruning and there's monitoring for that part. We have to plant the carrots around the vegetable crops around Portage, plant the potatoes. All of a sudden, there's no French fries being served because the restaurants are closed. Well, will there be a market for my potatoes? I got to plant them or else you don't get any. So that seemed to be some of the biggest was the uncertainties. And I guess being old enough and gray enough to encounter some of these situations before, it's like, what do we do? But I'm a farmer. So I plant the seeds, right? I go about doing what I do. Yeah. But you said something at one of your, I think it was your, your recent annual meeting, or perhaps this is when you first became the CAP president, Bill, that you, and I'm quoting what you said, is that there's a lot for our organizations to do. You know, we need to look down the road five to 10 years to see where agriculture fits in the Canadian economy. At the same time, we need to look at shorter term issues that are affecting our industry. So let's just take those in two parts. If you were to look down the road five to 10 years, I mean, you have 
your own crystal ball. It's Bill Campbell's crystal ball. What do you see? Well, I, I think we have seen, like when I started farming in the Minty area, I think there was 35 people my age that went back to farming. And so the transition and the succession and how do we have the right environment for the next generation to farm? And, and do we have those building blocks and do we have that support when we get into, and, and I guess be quite candid, since I've been president of Keystone Egg Producers, there's so many global issues and government effects and decisions that affect what we do and policies. And to me, it's become overwhelming. I've been exposed to all of these when you see all of these issues, be it rail blockades, be it China, be it Russia, be it country of origin labeling with the United States, tariff agreements, USMCA, and, and all of those things. And so as I make my investment of my time and my resources to invest in a farm, will there be that ability that I can carry on? Will there be that support for me so that if something happens and I, this, China canola issue cost my farm 25,000 bucks. We lost a dollar a bushel. Just like that's one farm. And so I would suggest to most listeners that $25,000 is a pretty significant hit. And so how do you adapt and how do you deal with that part of it? Yeah. That's just going to say that that comes right out of the, out of quote unquote left field. I mean, I don't mean that politically, but that there was no rhyme or reason for that whole canola issue. I think pretty everybody's pretty aware of that. I guess I would be more willing to accept or understand if, if it was a quality or if it was a product issue that the egg industry were negligent about. But I think it's been suggested quite correctly, purely political on this part. And farmers, I guess they're politicians to a degree, but within themselves and their families, not, not on the world stage. And so to have that impact on their bottom lines, and, and I would suggest that that particular $25,000 to Bill Campbell was Bill Campbell's money because I'd already paid for my inputs and already paid everybody else. It's not like I get to choose and say, well, I'm, I'm out that money that that other guy can absorb that $25,000 and I won't pay him. You know, it's the last three truckloads that Bill Campbell gets to keep after all the other expenses are paid is what is what Bill Campbell gets to invest in that part. So those type of impacts when we look long term and in a kind of a new type of conversation with climate change and carbon taxes and all of that part. And I think that we certainly are aware of, of climate issues and climate changes. But how do we adapt to those? And, and is it with our pocketbook or is it with our changes of practices? And so what will be 2030, 2050? What will agriculture be like? And I think we need to be part of that conversation because it all gets back to food security and food safety. If there is that economic challenges do we circumvent the safety and the security part of it? Because essentially, if we don't have economic viability, I'll cut corners. And I don't want to do that. But if it's between being kicked off my farm, those are the challenges. And we've seen some of that through the 80s with 
high interest rates. And that 35 people in my area, there might be 10 left farming because of some of those challenges and primarily economic would be the primary reason why most of them left. So, so Bill, if you, I want to talk a little bit about, because I w- went through the CAP policy website and there's some, just some really, really good stuff there. But one of the things that stuck out to me, well, there are a couple of things, but one of them stuck out to me was young farmers or, or new entrants. I mean, if somebody was to come to you and say, look, I'm, I'm starting a family, I want to start out, would you recommend somebody get into the farming business or the, I'll just say the ag business, because that's, that's a little bit more broader? Yeah, it, it's, it's a certainly a challenging field. It's almost like the weather in Manitoba. If you don't like it, it'll be different tomorrow. And I guess that's why I have appreciated it, because, man, I get tired of winter, but it'll be spring and the green will show up in the trees and then we'll have summer. And, you know, it's always varied. It's not the same task all the time. Would I recommend it? If they have a passion for it, you have to be dedicated. You have to be willing to learn, willing to adapt, and willing to put in long hours and willing to sacrifice. But the rewards are you're your own boss. There's quotes that my grandfather has that there is no better life than a farmer with regards to farmer's creed and and all of that. And watch your children grow. See them grow like through the years and stuff. So, yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's really, really well said, Bill. And, and I just think that it is such, it, I mean, it is a passion. It is, it's, I mean, somebody can even say it's a calling. It is a, it's a challenge. And I just sort of, you know, look at uh, when you, when you drive around the province of Manitoba or, or Saskatchewan, our, our prairie provinces, and you see these magnificent stands of wheat that go and stretch to the horizon. And you look behind and you see a very dark, dark cloud that could be full of hail. That's the part of it that I think is so difficult to see the hard work that's gone into that and how close you are to harvest, but to see it taken away from you. And yes, you know, there are people will say that, yeah, but there's insurance. But that whole piece is a whole other conversation, which, you know, is another podcast for us to, to sort of get into. But so, Bill, I wanted to just, I wanted to ask you a couple of quick questions because one of them is this conversation around agricultural awareness. I know that there's, you know, ag days they have in Brandon. And part of that is it's one of these things where a lot of kids, and this is sort of an urban rural issue, but it's reality where people ask, and I, where does milk come from? And see, people would sort of say, well, you know, say for your Sobeys or the food store. And there's no real understanding of, of what is that origin? What's your, what's your sense or how do you talk to people about that from an education standpoint? This is an opportunity to start at a very early age. And when we think of some of this part, egg in the classroom, I think there's a huge opportunity to bring some correct awareness of agriculture and food production in the classroom. And I think there's a push towards, I believe it's March, to be ag awareness month. So we have that opportunity to educate uh, I also believe that in October in Manitoba, we have the farm forum, is it, where the people can come to the farm and get a better understanding and appreciation with regards to young people wanting to farm. There's the apprentice type of approach where come and work with me or work with a farmer for a year to understand really if this is what you want to do. But I, but I think we need to have that, that knowledge set in 
our children that food is a very important item in our society. I've often stated that of all the things we do daily, food consumption is probably three times a day. And if you're strong, you can get by on twice a day, but it's something we do every day. So should we not have the knowledge about where that food comes from and how it is produced and how we best look after our body and how we can be ensured that healthy, keep ourselves healthy with regards to the consumption of the correct foods. It shouldn't necessarily be the cheapest food, but what is the best for our bodies and our health? And so we need to have that education in the, in the children. And I think there needs to be a greater component of that egg in the classroom. And we need to be able to tell the truth about where our food comes from and what it is that how we produce it and how efficient we are as producers and how it gets to your grocery store shelf in that part. And so I've always had instilled in me that you never have to hide from the truth. The truth will reveal itself and, and you can stand up to the truth. It's when we start getting into other corners that, that you have to hide and, and protect things. And so if we tell the truth about food production and how it's good for you, then we can have that communication. And I've always been big about communication as well, being able to speak candidly and openly about what I'd like. Quite on, I'm not understanding of all the issues with urban living. But I understand farm production and I'd have a conversation about your challenges and listen and all the rest of it. So that's, I strongly believe in that communication. Well, and I, Bill, it's uh, just uh, speaks to who you are uh, clearly through this conversation. You're incredibly intelligent, passionate, uh, knowledgeable about not only what happens outside of Minto, Manitoba, but globally in the world because you are plugged in. Let me ask you just a couple of quick ones before we close the conversation. When you talk about, and you, you can't go back 140 years, I understand that, of generations of your family, the Campbell family of farming. But for you personally, Bill Campbell, what would you say, if you looked at technology, what would you say the biggest positive impact technology has had on ag producers since you've been involved in being an, an ag producer? As I look back, there's numerous things that have affected where we're at now with regards to efficiencies. And I like we produce way more per acre or per acre with pounds of beef than, than what we did when, when I went to university. I suppose mechanization and technology, when we see it's actually been a whole generation to deal with zero till and how we look after the land and environmentally that aspect of it. And as we move along, we've gotten to equipment that handles that technology. We've had research with regards to variety development. Uh, we have agronomists that tell us about our land and the nutrients and what we need to put into it and how we balance and variable rate. Like some areas don't need this and some areas don't need that. And it's like humans. Some of us don't need to eat certain food products the same amount as other ones and, and all that part of it. And so, and for our nutrient management with regards to utilizing our resources at the best time, and, and that goes in conjunction with global positioning systems, GPS, efficient now that my 40-foot air seeder sows 40 feet, six inches, and six inches when, is when I come back the other direction. 
we're straight, efficient, we don't overlap, don't double rate at the ends and, and all of that part. Sprayers are extremely efficient about the right application and all of those things. So it, to target one thing, I, I it's like, like we had mentioned earlier, it's a complex system. We've seen an evolution of a number of different things that have put us where we're at now. And the last couple of years in, in Manitoba have been really good productive wise. And we see what we can do with regards to the right environment, the right management techniques, the right varieties. We're producing wheat that my grandfather would have no idea there was ever any possibility. 80, 90 bushels an acre of wheat. They were happy if they got 10 or 15. And so those efficiencies are allowing us to feed Manitoba and Canada and the world. And so that, that whole production is allows for global exports, allows for the Manitoba economy to grow uh, and that part. So. Yeah, for sure. Bill, only because you mentioned it, you talked about zero till. Talk about the importance of zero till. Well, it, it was instilled in in me at an early age that if you look after the land, it'll look after you. And so we care deeply because that's our livelihood. It's like an extension of your soul that you have to look after. It's a family member. It's it's how you make your living. It's like in the spring, you smell the earth. And I, I don't know if anybody can appreciate that aspect of it, but if you can smell the dirt, it's instilled in you. And so you look after it. And, and Zero Till has allowed us to ensure that erosion is not a major degradation to our soil, be it water erosion or wind erosion. I can remember preparing our soil in the 80s, cultivating it, and then watching it blow away and blow into the ditch and different parts. And so we've seen zero till protect our soil and allow us the opportunity to to bring earthworms and bring the carbon back into the soil and, and, and it's living and breathing and it's texture. It's, it's got organic matter in it. It's just like it's a living, living component and it wants to grow the, the grains and the oil seeds and the grasses and that part of it. And so we just get the opportunity to harvest part of what that growth is, but we need to look after it and just have to be able to take care of it. I know that you're doing all of that, and I would love to keep chatting with you, Bill. You are a knowledge, a fountain of knowledge, and rightly that you would be the president of the Keystone Ag Producers at this point with your history and what you've done through your family. I came across a quote that I just wanted to sort of throw out there. It's from a a guy by the name of Franz Kafka, and the quote is, so long as you have food in your mouth, you have solved all questions for the time being. And the only way you're going to get that food in your mouth is if people like you and others that to produce product and for us to sort of consume have that ability. And I just want to say on behalf of as a consumer, Bill, thank you for what you and your colleagues do day by day by day. And you do feed the world. And we are very, very fortunate to have people like you who are so passionate to ensure that there is food for the world to eat. So continued success in what you do. I do look for an opportunity. I'd love to come out and see your farm one day when this COVID thing is out, because it sounds very impressive. If I were to say what is impressive, it is you, Bill Campbell. Thank you very much for taking time to speak to me on Humans on Rights. 
Well, thank you for the opportunity. And, and I guess I consider it a privilege to do what we do. I believe it's an honorable profession to be able to provide food, necessity of life for human society. So it's just something that I enjoy tremendously and understand that there's large amount of the population appreciates what we do. That is a, like I say, a, a real privilege that, that I've been given the opportunity to do. Thank you for sharing that, Bill. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. And the, the invitation is open anytime when we can get past this COVID. It, we've had numerous visitors that say it is a place of beauty, but it, to me, it's home. That's, that's all. I love that. On that note, we'll call it a day. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Okay. Thank you very much. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.